All right, I'm going to do this pretty quick here because the Giants are on at noon and we all got to get out of here, right? It's the last game of the season. Got to see if we win. Um, okay, so there's a few parts of the Bible uh, that everybody knows, right? Um, outside of the church, everybody knows. Walking on water, right? That's a joke as always, you know, Jesus walked on water or whatever. Um, feeding the 5,000, everybody knows that one. Uh, Lazarus, I think a lot of that's become kind of a, you know, word in our culture. You know, obviously the story of the cross and the resurrection. Um, maybe the prodigal son, you'll hear that in Reddit comments. Am I the only one that goes on Reddit all day? Okay, I'll hear that in Reddit comments. Um, <clears throat> this one today is another one, right? The Good Samaritan. The context for this story, uh, as we read this though, we don't want to just, uh, what I mean is we don't want um, to just read this the way the world reads this. And as one of those popular stories, Jesus walked on water, Good Samaritan, yada, yada, we all know the whole story, right? We want to put the story in its context, and we really want to see what the Lord has to say to us through this story. So if you've not been with us, let me just give you the quick context. Um, Jesus is on his mission to head to Jerusalem, and <clears throat> he's sort of made a beeline now for Jerusalem. He had his ministry in Galilee, and now things in the middle of chapter 9 have shifted, where he says, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. As he's doing that, he's weaving through all these different towns, and He's making his way towards the cross. He sent out, in the last one we did, the last couple we did here, he sent out the 72 um, disciples. They went, they taught, they healed, they cast out demons, did all that stuff. Then they came back and they were really excited. Look at all this stuff that we did for you. And Jesus tells them, well, don't be excited about the ministry. Don't be excited about the things that you have done for God. What he told them was, be excited about the things God has done for you. Right? Don't rejoice that the demons are subject in your name. But rejoice um, that your names from the beginning of time have been written in the book of life. And that's what he tells them. And so as if to prove his point. See, this is the context of the Good Samaritan is really important. Almost to prove his point that um, our faith is not about what you do for God, but about what God does for you. We have a story that illustrates it perfectly. And so we don't know exactly when this happened um, in the chronological order of, remember, I told you Luke... Sometimes we'll take things and kind of rearrange the chronological sequence to make a theological point. And these two stories that we're going to read today, the Good Samaritan and then the story of Mary and Martha, I think he does that on purpose. So as if to prove Luke's point, you know, about this is not what we do for God, it's what God does for us, this lawyer stands up. So let's take a look here. Verse, we're just going to walk through it together. <clears throat> verse, I just pointed it at this, but it's over there. Um, <laughs> uh, verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up, uh, to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Move this over here. So the lawyer is, this is like, uh, you know, we have all our lawyer jokes, you know, um, here, and, you know, we always brag on lawyers and stuff. This is a little bit different. Don't think of a lawyer exactly like we would think of a lawyer. Remember, back then, the religion and the law, all of that was all just mixed up and mashed together. There were no walls separating that sort of stuff. And so this person is a lawyer, but th which is true, but really, he's an expert in the Old Testament law. So he's a religious scholar. Um, we would probably say he's something like, a, in our culture, this is a seminary professor, right? This is the guy who knows some stuff, and he teaches people. And so he stands up, which is funny, because in the, the Lumo project video, they were like, and then the lawyer stood up, and then he didn't stand up in the video. And I'm like, it says it right there, guys, stand up. There's not a lot of stage direction in the New Testament, but like that was clearly one of them, you know. Um, so he doesn't stand up, uh, but here in the text he actually does. Now, the way this would work was 
teachers, see, I liked the way they did teaching back in the day a lot better. Being an old man with a slip disc. I saw a thing on, speaking of Reddit, right, the other day this guy was like, you know, I'm 36, but my back is 58, my knees are 75, and I was like, oh, man, this guy understands me. Because um, I like the way they did the teaching back in the day, me being an old man, is the teacher would sit down for the whole sermon and everybody else would stand up. So just to practice, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that's how they would do it. And so by Luke saying, and then the guy stood up, what he was really saying was, this was like some sort of an official teaching session, right? This man is acknowledging that Jesus is the teacher and he's the student by him standing um, and Jesus sitting. But his question is not really sincere, right? It says he went to put him to the test, right? Uh, He stood up to put him to the test. He had no actual personal interest in what Jesus had to say. Later, we'll see people with similar stories uh, who ask Jesus questions, and some of them seem to be a lot more sincere than this guy. They're actually trying to figure this out. What he's trying to do is he's trying to trap Jesus into saying something stupid that then they can turn around and throw in his face, and they can condemn him or do whatever. And the thing is that's amazing about Jesus as you read the Gospels is he never says anything stupid. Everybody who talks in public as much as people who get up front, are bound to say something dumb. I googled some of these. You ready for this? Okay, Bush was really easy to find. Um, you know, when you're running for president, there's, you're up in front just all day for a year, basically, talking hours and hours every day. Uh, let's see, I read, here's, some, here's some good ones. Bush, our enemies are innovative and resourceful, and so are we. They never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country, and neither do we. That's a good Bush one. Obama, you guys remember when Obama was running for president and he was talking about, he had that one where he was, um, I've been to 57 of the states. Do you remember that? Or he was talking about um, asthma kids and his, um, at a hospital or something and his teleprompter went off. And Obama was not great without the teleprompter. And when he was like, you know, we've got to give the kids breathalyzers. And he meant, what are those things? Um, inhalers, right? Uh, Trump, there was too many to count. Uh, <laughs> okay, here's another one, Biden, right? You know when Biden, you ever see this clip? Google this if you haven't heard this audio. I want to read you the quote. Biden says to a senator who was a war hero in a wheelchair, he says to him, I'm told Chuck Graham, he's at something. The state senator is here. Stand up, Chuck. Let him see you. And then he goes, oh, no, what am I talking about? I tell you what, well, you're making everybody else stand up and clap. He, like, tried to, he told a guy in a wheelchair to stand up and take a bow, right? Now, the point is, That's not actually that dumb, right? When you talk that much in public, these kind of things are bound to happen. That's what they're trying to trick Jesus into. Uh, But it's just, you know, he's Jesus, right? He's not Joe Biden or Trump or Bush. It's not going to happen. By the way, there's a great, just speaking of presidential gaffes, um, George Bush is actually a pretty great sport. He went on Jimmy Kimmel and played a game called uh, Did I Say It or Not? And it was like all these really dumb things, and George Bush had to guess whether or not it was something he had said or not. And it was pretty funny. Google that later on. Um, Anyway, so this guy is trying to trick Jesus into saying something stupid like these presidential candidates. And what he asks him is, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Um, Again, this isn't the only time. If you remember, the rich young ruler asks Jesus this question verbatim. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? It was probably a very common thing to ask rabbis back then. Like, what are your views on this? What do... but here's, here's the, where he gets it wrong. Do you see what he says? What do I need to do? What should I do? What can I do to inherit eternal life? As if there's anything that a person can do. And this is the big difference, again, between religion on the one hand and the gospel on the other hand. 
is religion is all about what can you do for God. And the gospel is, what, what does God do for you? And this is what this guy just completely doesn't understand. So Jesus answers his question uh, with a question. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Um, you know, it's like that joke about seeing a therapist and um, why do you always answer my questions with a question? And the therapist goes, I don't know. Why do you think I do that? And you just want to strangle the therapist, right? This is what Jesus is doing to this guy. He's, just, he's answering his question with a question. Basically, again, this was a super common technique of the rabbis. You could read about that. Like, this was very, this is what they did. Um, this sort of Socratic question and answer sort of thing. Um, but Jesus asks him, like, what, what is written? Basically, what Jesus is saying here is, I don't know, you're the seminary professor. Why are you asking me? What do you, what do you think? Right? Um, and he continues, so the guy answers, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So this is cool. So what this guy does is he answers with a very common answer, which was, do you guys remember we did a whole week studying the Shema from uh, Deuteronomy 6.5, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your might. So basically, this guy answers, first, you've got to love God with your entire being. And we won't get into the whole, what that means, all these different pieces, how it basically just means your entire being. Um, but then he adds this bit from Leviticus 19.18, where it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. So this scribe actually has a really great answer, right? Another, he, he gives Jesus the Sunday school answer, right? When we talk about the Sunday school answer, what do we mean, you know? What's the, you know, Jesus, right? That's the Sunday school answer. This is the, the ancient Jewish version of the Sunday school answer, is the Shema and this command to love your neighbor uh, uh, as yourself, right? And so uh, Jesus says, and so he said to him, all right, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Okay, this is one of those times where I wish we could get tone of voice somehow through the scriptures, because I bet Jesus is being super sarcastic here. Uh, do you see what he did? He just gave this guy a taste of his own medicine, because what these scribes and Pharisees were very commonly known for, uh, Matthew talks about this in the Gospel of Matthew, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. Basically, these religious dudes would add all this extra stuff to the law of Moses and then throw it on people, and it would just crush them. And then they weren't doing it themselves, and this is why Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs and um, calls them hypocrites and all this different stuff. And so what Jesus does to this guy is what he does to everybody else. He lays an impossible burden on his shoulders. Do you see it? How can I be saved? I don't know. You're the theologian. All right, so you love God and love everybody else perfectly. Jesus goes, great, fine, go do that. <laughs> go love God perfectly. Go love your neighbor as yourself perfectly. And then you just, you'll go right into heaven and you are going to inherit eternal life. So then this scribe sitting there starts thinking about his life. Huh. I don't really do either of those things. So I need a loophole. So desiring, but, does it hit, but he, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So how can I shrink the definition of loving my neighbor so that it fits, so that I can actually do this? I can't love all my neighbors. That's just not going to cut the Dijon, right? It's not something I can do. I need to inherit eternal life. So how can I make this so that I only have to love some people? Right? How can I shrink this definition? And so to answer it is where Jesus tells the famous parable, to answer that question. All right, you want to shrink the definition? Let me give you a story. Uh, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
So this was a very common road. So Jesus tells his story, and the story starts on this very common road. It was an 18-mile stretch. So Jerusalem was at the top of a mountain, and Jericho was basically at the foot of the mountain, 3,200 feet below. And uh, so in 18 miles, it drops down 3,200 feet, and it's very rocky. And in our culture, imagine if I said to you, you know, it's like driving down I-5. All of you right now, you just pictured I-5. And uh, you imagine if I told you a story about how annoying it is to get behind a truck who gets in the left lane and then goes the same speed as the truck in the right lane, and it makes you want to murder everybody on I-5. All of you would go, hey, I know that exact feeling, right? I've been on this road and wanted to kill these truckers who were driving next to each other. This is kind of what Jesus is doing. This is a very common road that people would travel. Um, and this road is very like... Uh, jagged and rocky and there were a lot of caves and it was a very dangerous road because there's a lot of place for these uh, robbers and different folks to rob people and then hide out and um, so it was a very dangerous road to travel by yourself which is one of the reasons when you read about people going to um, Passover or different festivals in Jerusalem they would travel in huge groups and this was part of the reason why Uh, not just because they're uh, ancient people who are very clan, family-oriented, but also just for safety, to be in a big group. And so this guy was traveling by himself for some reason. He's going down the road, and these robbers jump out, and they beat the tar out of him, and they leave him him for dead on the side of the road. And they take everything that he has. So his situation, this is not great, right? Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Okay, so priests. If you don't know about the uh, Old Testament faith, right, this, the Old Testament Jewish faith with the system, there was the temple, and the priests were the in-between the mediators of the covenant. They were the in-between God and people, right? They represented uh, the people to God, and they would do sacrifices, and all of these priests were descendants of Moses' little brother Aaron. And so these priests, what they, there were actually a lot of priests in the first century. And so what they would do is they would work a shift at the temple for a week or two per year. And most of them lived in Jericho. And they worked in Jerusalem. So this guy, uh, was, uh, this guy was coming down the mountain, right? And I saw, and Kayla and I were talking about this, um, I saw one thing about this passage where what they were saying was the priest had a really good reason to not touch the dead guy because then he would be ritually unclean and he wouldn't be able to serve in the temple. But Jesus specifically says he was coming down the mountain, which means he's coming home from work. He's coming home from his, uh, his little stint in the temple. So, um, <clears throat> you know, even if he was going up the way, is that a valid reason to not help this guy? It's not, right? This guy, that's choosing a minor thing over a major thing. This guy is dying. And Jesus is very clear about that. So what was his reason, this priest? Why would he not help? Well, Jesus doesn't really say. Um, It doesn't make a lot of sense for us to guess. And one of the things when you're interpreting parables is you don't want to add a lot of details to stuff that's not really there, right? So Jesus doesn't say. Whatever his his reasoning was, there's really no excuse that makes his actions noble. There's no reason for him to not help this guy. Um, And so this would have been very shocking to the people hearing this. They, They held these priests in high esteem. These were like their pastors or their leader, their church leaders, you know. These are the people they thought, if anybody's going to help this guy going down the road, it's going to be this priest. Um, and so, you know, he doesn't do it. And then a Levite comes along. Now, Levites, uh, let me explain how this works, right? So there's t- tribes of Israel. Uh, all of 
the, the sons of Aaron, who are the priests, are part of the tribe of Levi. The rest of the tribe of Levi, who aren't the actual sons of Aaron and are the priests, they're what we call Levites. And they were like the assistant pastors of the, the temple service. So they didn't get to do the actual sacrifice, but they stood there and they handed the knife to the guy that did, right? So there were a lot more of these guys. So again, these are very important religious figures. These are the, like the assistant pastors of the day. And the assistant pastor walks by and he goes, oh, I don't want anything to do with that guy. You know, he steps over him and walks to the other side and he takes off. Now, I think everybody sitting in the first century listening to this story would have thought that they knew where Jesus was going next. Okay, so the priest doesn't help the guy. The Levite doesn't help the guy. Who's going to come help the guy? It's probably going to be a regular Jewish person. And Jesus' point is going to be regular people should have all these different kinds of neighbors. You know what I mean? Like um, something like that. But Jesus, what he does is he goes way out of bounds. Right? He does something that everybody, audible gasp in this culture would have said. Right? Uh, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. All right, so let me just really quickly give you the history of the Samaritans. We're actually going to be in the Good Samaritan parable for three sermons in a row. So we're going to do a lot, and we're actually going to talk a lot about race and some other stuff later on, so I'm not going to give you the whole history. But basically, back in the day, Israel split into two kingdoms, Judah in the south, Israel in the north. A group called the Assyrians came in and took over the north and scattered all the people of the north, the ten tribes of the north, and they all just sort of disappeared. So the the tribes in the south, in the, the kingdom of Judah, they held on for a little while longer until... The, the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem in three separate attacks, uh, ending in 586. And what they did was they took most of the people of Israel into captivity in Babylon. And, uh, but they left some of them behind. And a lot of the people that they left behind, what they did was they intermarried with the new people who had moved into the north after all those people were dispersed. And so this, this group of Jewish Ethnically Jewish folks married this group of probably mostly Assyrian people, and this new people group was called the Samaritans. And what happened was, and we're going to get into some of the actual, like, I'll tell you about some stories and some dates and stuff, but basically what happened was the Jewish people came back to the land and they said, you guys intermarried and adapted the faith, and that's not what God told us to do, and so we don't want anything to do with you. And it turned into this, like, super racist, these two groups that were basically brothers, very close uh, ethnically, they hated each other. And the Samaritans went and they set up their own temple. They had their own priests, their own sacrifices. Um, They had their own version of the Old Testament. And so it was basically like the Safeway brand of the religion of the covenant of God, right? And so these two groups really, really didn't like each other. And this continued into the first century when Jesus is telling this story. And so this is one of the last people that you would expect for this to happen. Do you guys remember we talked about, um, just real quick, about James and John, the sons of thunder? You remember this story? So they basically go and they try to share the gospel in this Samaritan town, and then this town rejects them. And so James and John are like, Jesus, call down fire from heaven and let's burn these turkeys, you know? And that's when they get the nickname, the sons of thunder. Jesus is like, all right, guys, calm down. All right. <laughs> sons of thunder over here think they're going to call down fire from heaven. But their reaction to the Samaritan's rejection was very common of the day. They're going to reject Jesus. Let's burn them all. You know what I mean? Like they really hated each other, the Samaritans and the Jewish folks. So this Samaritan comes by, and what happens? He, he has compassion. Now, it's no accident that Luke uses this very specific Greek word. 
it, we've talked about this word before. This is a word that's almost only ever used about Jesus. Um, I think, yeah, check this out. Matthew 9.36. When he saw the crowds, he had, uh, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. It's right before the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 4,000 in Mark. I, let's see, yeah, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. Um, in the story after the transfiguration with the demon-oppressed boy, and it often cast him into the fire uh, and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, he's talking to Jesus, the Father. Have compassion on us and help us. And then we're told that he does. Um, in Matthew twenty thirty four, it says, and Jesus, and Jesus in pity touched their eyes, which is the same Greek word for compassion. Uh, Luke, oh wait, there it is, sorry. Luke seven thirteen. And when the Lord saw her, remember the widow at Nain's story, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. So Luke, specifically here in this verse, uses a word that is only ever really used in the New Testament to talk about the heart of Jesus. And he says, when this Samaritan had compassion on that guy, it's the same way that you saw me have compassion on the widow when I raised the son, on the crowds when I fed the 5,000, on the demon-oppressed boy when I healed him and cast out the demon. Um, It shows us the heart of the Samaritan. So how... How does that heart play out? How does he have compassion? It, practically, he went, uh, he went to him and bound, him up, uh, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him uh, to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii uh, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I, came back, when I come back. So first, he gives him very primitive, old-school medicine, Oh, you're cut up all over your body? Let me pour olive oil on you. I guess that's what they used to do. And wine, sort of as a disinfectant. Puts him on his own animal, which is, doesn't seem like a big deal for us. But what that means is now this guy has to slow down and walk when there's still robbers around. Right? So whatever animal this was, it doesn't specifically say donkey. Uh, could have been a donkey. Could have been a horse. Uh, could have been a centaur. We don't know. Um, just kidding. And then he spends money, right? So he gives him his animal, he gives him medicine, he spends money, which was, this was the equivalent of a couple of hundred bucks. Um, and with an open-ended tab, right? He takes him to the, the nearest inn and he says, hey, whatever this guy needs, like, put it on my tab, right? Which is a pretty uh, great thing to say. Verse 36. So Jesus finishes the parable and he turns to the, the, the seminary professor. Which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. So who was the neighbor? That's what Jesus asks him. Remember the man's hidden agenda, the seminary professor's hidden agenda. I don't want to be a neighbor. I want to shrink who I have to be a neighbor to so that I can inherit eternal life. And so what Jesus does is he completely boxes him in. He has no choice in his answer but to say, the Samaritan, right? The guy, a lot of people have pointed out, he doesn't even say Samaritan. You know, was, I mean, we don't know for sure, but was it like, I don't even want to say the word Samaritan. It's just, it, you know, it's like, uh, right, um, Bill Clinton, that woman, you know what I mean? Like he wouldn't even say her name. I think that's what's kind of going on here. Uh, Jesus didn't leave him a lot of wiggle room, backed him into this corner, and he has to admit that the boundaries for neighborly love are wide, not narrow. And the scribe, 
what he couldn't do. Right? He's the, he knows the Old Testament law. What we would expect him to do if this wasn't true was to say, well, actually, Jesus, let me go through all these verses that say we can narrow this definition. But he doesn't do that. He just shuts up and says, yeah, that guy. Because he knows if he does a walk through the Old Testament, what he's going to find is literally hundreds of verses that talk about neighbors uh, with aliens and strangers and people who are coming in. You know, this, this idea of love being spread wide is all over the Old Testament, and the people are condemned because they don't do it. And so Jesus is telling him, sorry, dude, there's no loopholes. And so he challenges him. Again, he does to him, he does to the scribe what the scribe does to everybody else. He lays a burden on him he can't handle. All right, now go and do likewise. Go ahead and do it. Again, the context. How can I inherit eternal life? I don't know. What do you think? Well, do the Old Testament, Shema, and love your neighbors and stuff. Great. Do that and you'll be great. Well, I can't do that. So let's shrink this and make it so I can do it. So Jesus tells a parable how you can't shrink it. Now, again, he jumps back to the beginning. Go and do it all by yourself and you'll be fine. And so think about where this leaves the listener and the reader. I can't do that perfectly. That's what you're supposed to look at this. I can't possibly measure up to this standard that Jesus gives us. Go and do likewise. Go and love God perfectly and love your neighbor, which is this wide group of people, basically all different kinds of people. And that's the key to this whole parable. right? Let's take a look at this real close. Uh, let's see. One of the keys to this parable, too, I'll say this, is notice where Jesus places the Jewish person um, in the story. So you guys know um, Augustine from, what was he like, the 300s. He did a sermon on this. That's kind of become the standard, this is how Christians interpret this parable, and it's a genius insight. And what he says is that where Jesus puts the Jewish guy in the story is the key. You see, the story isn't a Samaritan was on the road and then got robbed. And now you, the Jewish person, you're called to help the Samaritan. That's not what the parable is, right? The parable is the Jewish guy is the victim. And he's telling this to another Jewish guy. And so the victim is the guy hearing the parable. You see, because there were other ancient versions of the same story. This is not the first time this was told. But uh, in Jewish rabbis, if you read the old stuff that those guys wrote, I I was reading about this, there's a lot of these kind of stories, right? Um, But it's always the Jewish guy is the hero, So there's a rabbi who helps a leper. There's a rabbi who helps a Roman who was shipwrecked. But here, Jesus makes the Jewish guy the victim and the outcast the hero. He flips this story that a lot of these people probably would have heard. And he does it for a reason, right? Um, Jesus is saying this. Imagine for a second that you're the helpless victim. That's what he's trying to tell this guy. You're the dude on the road. You're the Jewish guy on the road. And the priest didn't help you. And the Levite didn't help you. But you need help. Now, do you, would you wish that the Samaritan was trying to narrow his definition of a, who, what neighbors I have to love? See, the guy, this is the gospel part of this story. The guy was asking, what do I need to do in my religious life to inherit eternal life? That was his question. And Jesus tells him, you can't. You're the victim. Spiritually, you're the dude on the road. You have no hope. You have no chance to get out on your own. You're lying there and you're bleeding to death. And the gospel is this, that Jesus came along and he modeled what neighborly love looks like. He saved you, but it didn't just cost him a little bit of oil and wine, walking on the road, and a little bit of money. He did what the Samaritan did, but at the cost of his own life. Romans 5.10 says this, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, 
Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That's the point of the story. While you were Jesus' enemy, he was not the good Samaritan. He was the great Samaritan. Um, There's a guy, Mike McKinley, wrote a book about the book of Luke, and he says this. From that perspective, we can see that Jesus is the true good Samaritan. Uh, he He came to us while we were still his enemies. He met us while we were dead in our sins and trespasses. He fulfilled the requirements and paid the price so that our soul's wounds might be healed. It is only by trusting in Christ's death and resurrection that we can inherit eternal life. You see, our fallen and sinful hearts always want to revert back to this. I can do something to save myself. Right? I can act this way. I can narrow the definition of neighbor, and then I can inherit eternal life. And the gospel says, sorry, guys, that's completely backwards, and it's never going to work. Religion can never be about what you do for Jesus. Right? Our faith is always about what Jesus has done for us. And then we see that illustrated in this little story that's kind of squeezed in here. And it's, an, it's a very odd little story. But I think the reason is it's right after. And again, we actually know this story happened a lot later in the, in the chronological order. But Luke takes it and he puts it right here. It says this. Now, while they were on their way, Jesus entered a village. We know the village is Bethany from one of the other Gospels. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. This is Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters. And when um, she called her sister, sorry, and when she had her, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. That could be a whole sermon, by the way. Just the way that, that would have been very shocking to anybody in the first century world to see a woman disciple sitting at the feet of this famous rabbi. And we've talked a lot about the upside down kingdom and how Jesus flips all these cultural things on their heads, right? Um, but Martha, she was distracted with, uh, you know, much serving, with all the serving and making the stuff, right? And she went up to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. You can hear the tone in her voice, even though this is translated from Greek. You know, the, the tell her to help me, huh? You know, <laughs> right? She's mad. And she's doing all the work, right? Like I always make my mom do at Thanksgiving, right? While I sit and watch football, right? Stop watching football and help me. That's what she should say, even though she doesn't, right? This is the idea. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, or a way to say that, that's like a phrase. Mary's chosen the better, right, the thing that's better, um, which will not be taken away from her. So this story illustrates that same point. There's a reason Luke puts it here out of chronological order. This was a hospitality culture, and there was pride in the hospitality, and there was shame if you were a bad host. In, a, in an honor-shame culture that's very different from our Western individual culture. This was a big deal. And Martha is doing exactly what society expects her to do. She's being a great host. She's doing all the preparations, right? She's making the little quiches and the stuffed mushrooms, right? And I don't know what they were eating, all that stuff, right? She's making all this stuff. And, but her sister's just sitting there listening to Jesus teach. So she starts complaining because her mindset is, Martha, Mary, why aren't you doing stuff for Jesus? I'm doing things for him. And Jesus says, sorry, Martha, you've got it backwards. She's the one who gets it. Because she's, it's not what you guys do for me, it's what I do for you. Right? She's listening and she's serving and, uh, and she's uh, learning and sitting at my feet. And so those two stories go together so well. And because they both illustrate that point about the gospel. And once you see the gospel... As the story of Jesus, Tim Keller, I think, came up with that phrase, the great Samaritan, right? You're going to start to see the whole world through this lens. Um, And what Jesus does 
in a big way to secure our salvation through his death and resurrection, we as his people then are called to do in a small way. We're called to emulate the work of the great Samaritan by being a bunch of good Samaritans. And it's when you see Jesus as this greatest neighbor, now you're empowered and you're, you're uh, free to be a good neighbor because now your salvation doesn't rest on how successful you are as a neighbor. Right? It's not, what do I do to get saved? It's, I'm already saved now. Jesus has called me to act like him and to be a good neighbor. And it's back to the gospel motivation that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Right? We love other people because he first loved us. That's what the, the book of 1 John says. And so we reach out to our neighbors. You, know, you guys know, I've been talking about this for a long time, and I've told you, I'm going to beat you to death with this idea of we love our neighbors, and that's the main thing we do here at the porch. You are going to hear this until you hate me, and you hate the word neighbor. Right? Because we're gonna, we, this is what we want to do. But we don't reach out to our neighbors hoping to impress Jesus. That's not the point. Right? That's not what we do. We love other people imperfectly, but as best we can, because he loved us perfectly. So what does this look like then? Right? Well, John, did you just teach the whole Good Samaritan story and not really give me practical stuff about how to love my neighbor? Yeah, I did. Because we're going to do that in the next two weeks. I started writing this sermon, and then I realized either we've got to be here till 3 o'clock today, or we've got to break this up into some other sermons. Um, and so uh, in two weeks, we're going to talk about some wide because there's no church next week. Don't show up next week. You'll be the only one here. Uh, in two weeks, we're going to talk about just sort of some wide general ideas about what the Bible says about gospel love and loving our neighbors. And then in three weeks, um, there's a book called Loving My Actual Neighbor, which is uh, a pretty good book. Uh, well, I was telling Kayla, it's a good book, but not good enough for all you to read. So what we're going to do is I'm going to give you her seven ideas of how to love your actual neighbor. And I'm going to kind of add some stuff and summarize so you guys don't have to sit down and read the actual book. But just practical, like, okay, now we're called to love our neighbors because we love Jesus and he loves us. Now, what does that actually look like? And we're going to talk about that. For this week, all I want you to do, there's no application. Usually a sermon ends with application. That's what we're doing the next two weeks. I just want you to go home and marinate in the gospel, right? Think about this truth. Jesus is the, 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 the great Samaritan. He's the perfect neighbor. He left his comfort, and he sacrificed his love to save you. Yeah, you while you were spiritually robbed, lying on the ground, beaten and dead with no hope. Jesus came by, and he's the only one that actually should have just stepped over you. And he didn't. He got down, and he got in the mud, and he, ended up, he died, and he rose again for you. Just go home, think about that truth, and then we'll apply it in the next, uh, in the next couple weeks.